Welcome to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. I am Dr. John, the guide for your heroic journey towards greater health, success, and most importantly, happiness. And now, on with the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of the Evolved Caveman Podcast. This is Dr. John, and this is part two on men and shame. Shame, the most powerful emotion impacting us men that we have absolutely no freaking idea of. And yes, I did end that sentence in a preposition. I am deeply ashamed. First things first, a shameless self-promotional plug. Wow, a lot of shame today. So feel free to come join us in Costa Rica for a life-changing retreat with myself, Dr. John, and my amazing fiance, Jory Rose, from April 22nd to the 29th in 2023 at the gorgeous Pura Vida Retreat and Spa, where every day you'll have the opportunity to explore beautiful Costa Rica while also delving into relationship skills that will be sure to provide you with the tools to create and maintain your best relationship ever. Whether you are single, newly dating, been married for a really long time, or even if it just feels like a really long time, or are recently dating after divorce, these relationship skills will benefit you in all areas of your life. Having the ultimate relationship does not happen by chance. When you learn how to implement and integrate these scientifically proven skills, you'll have the chance to feel fulfillment, contentment, and satisfaction with yourself and your significant relationships. Everyone is worthy and deserving of being in a great relationship. For more info, visit joryrose.com slash retreats. That's joryrose, J-O-R-E-E-R-O-S-E.com slash retreats. And now on to the business of life. So to recap, men's shame often finds its birthplace in the man box. What is the man box, you ask? Well, it is not dick in the box, although it's quite close. It is the way in which we are raised as boys, the way in which we men police ourselves so that we act a certain way, as if there were one best acceptable way to show up as a real man. I'm talking about the rules that we learn, deeply and thoroughly learn, about how to be a real man. And part of the problem is these rules are so deeply and thoroughly learned that we don't even separate them from who we are as individuals. They are the air we breathe. They are the water in which we swim, and we have no awareness of them. The translation of all this man box shit is how do we survive childhood and adolescence without being mocked, humiliated, and getting the shit kicked out of us? When you ask many male teens the question, what does it take to be a real man? You'll get very similar answers. Things like men provide for the family or don't be a sissy or don't back down or don't ask for help. In other words, be self-reliant. Men don't turn down sex. Men dominate women. Men have needs. Sorry, men don't have needs. We don't lose. We don't act gay. We don't act like a girl. and men don't feel. And among other problems there, this is the root of shame for many of us. You see, the problem is that along with being men, we're also human. And one of the primary things humans do is feel. 
So we're faced with a rule deeply drilled into us from early childhood. In other words, don't feel, don't be a pussy. And at the same time, we're human and we do feel. Feelings are our inborn system, which tells us what to avoid in the form of uncomfortable emotions like fear and what to approach in the form of pleasant emotions like interest. So what happens when a deeply ingrained, learned set of rules comes into direct conflict with an innate imperative? We feel ashamed. And the definition of shame is the belief that we are unworthy of love, unworthy of belonging, and unworthy of connection. Shame isolates us. Shame fuels abuse, anger, and vitriol. Now, if you overlap this onto the epidemic of loneliness that we've seen in men, if, we've, if we overlap it onto the epidemic of addiction and deaths of despair that we see in men, it seems pretty self-evident to me that shame has a large part in those things. And personally, I've realized that I have felt more shame during the past three years than I have in some time. In fact, I thought for some time I didn't have any shame, which... It's you know, not a bad place to be, but I did. And as for many of us, the last few year, the, pardon me, the last few years have been difficult. There was COVID, of course, which needs no introduction or reminder, but COVID disconnected us from others, made us fearful of interacting with others, and hid our smiles behind masks. Prior to the outbreak of COVID, I'd been struggling with fairly severe spinal stenosis. And this means that the bone in three of my vertebrae had continued to grow. And it led to randomly pinched nerves in my low back and legs. And for those of you who have experienced nerve pain, I'm sorry for your suffering. And you know of the pain of which I speak. Because nerve pain is an 11 on a 10-point scale. There is nothing like it. I would be walking to the kitchen after waking up and get hit with a jolt of electrical pain sizzling through the lower half of my body out of the blue that would cause me to drop to the floor. And my first thought was, where is the nearest place I can crawl to and lie down? Now, to help me with this, I had several epidural injections or shots into my spine, which is always scary, as I had one several years ago where the needle nicked a nerve in my spine and led to uh, weeks of even worse pain throughout my body. And often these epidurals would help for a few weeks at a time until they didn't anymore, until I had had, I guess, too many. And I had a procedure where they opened up my back with small incisions while I was awake, not anesthetized, because I had to have full feeling for it. And they would dig into my back to tap the nerves in question to see if I would feel the responding sensation down my leg. And when they found the right nerve, that nerve was cauterized. It was burned. And this helped for about two months. And it was really nice to be pain-free for two months. And then the pain returned. So the day after my birthday in 2020, at the height of COVID, I was scheduled for spinal surgery. And the surgeon went in and roto-rooted three of my vertebrae, kind of 
sanded out some of that bone. And they gave me the choice of whether or not to leave the hospital. They're like, do you want to stay here tonight or would you rather go home? I was like, um, I'll go home. And so I left the hospital the same day. I walked out hours after my spinal surgery and Jory picked me up and nursed me back to health. So that was you know, some trauma and some difficulty. And then also during COVID, my daughter's issue with her mother, issues with her mother boiled over. As my daughter Molly was struggling with mental health and self-harm while at her mother's, Molly and I had explained to my ex-wife that she was more comfortable, relaxed, and mentally healthy at my place in an attempt to get more time than just 50-50 custody. And her mom said, no. Uh, So I went to court because my daughter was begging me and pleading with me. So I went to the courts and asked for more time than 50-50. And the court said, no. And unfortunately, it culminated in a mental health crisis for my daughter, which was frightening, but also led me to having 100% custody of her. And the beautiful thing is that after having lived with me 100% of the time for over a year, she's now doing remarkably well. And while I love having her live with me all the time, this did put an additional strain on my relationship with Jory because our time was cut shorter and shorter. What's more, throughout these events, I was helping my 85-year-old aging parents complete with their health scares and near-death experiences and medical appointments, sometimes to the point of 20 hours a week. And I was simultaneously supporting the highest number of clients I'd ever managed. And during COVID, the psychological and emotional needs of my clientele had increased exponentially. And I'm sure I'm forgetting a few things, but all of this is to say that the past three years have been a struggle at times. And that struggle could result in an internal sense of shame for me. And the thought that I would hear or thoughts were something like, man, dude, I'm the professional. I should be able to handle this. It also led to more exhaustion, frustration, depression, stress, and irritability. And one of the lines that would gut me is when Jory and I would get in a disagreement and I'd get angry. And she might say something like, how come you can't use the tools you teach? Or you're the anger management expert, right? Can't you manage your anger? Ouch. Shame. I'd get sad, hurt, angry, and withdraw. And in my withdrawal, I would sense the quick, pernicious thoughts of, I'm no good at this relationship stuff. She'd be better off without me. Not worthy of connection. Not worthy of love. Not worthy of belonging. Just for the record, being an expert in anger management does not mean I don't ever get angry. It just means I've done a lot of work around it. I know the tools and I'm better at managing my anger. The goal is never to rid ourselves completely of anger as it is a useful emotion at times and depending on how we behave as a result of our anger. So emotion is different and separate from how we behave as a result of the anger. Unfortunately, I am still human and I do still feel emotion, a fact which frustrates the hell out of me on many a day. So 
it makes me wonder, given my own struggles, how many others of you out there have experienced more shame as a result of the increased stressors caused by COVID and that internal thought of, I should be able to deal with all this. If so, remind yourself, this is natural. It's human. It's a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. The situation is fucked up. Your response is not. Your response is normal. And give yourself a lot, a lot of self-compassion as soon as you pull out of your shame spiral. And remind yourself, and then I try and remind myself of this daily with mantras and repetition and meditation and post-it notes, but remind yourself, I am worthy of connection. I'm worthy of love. I'm worthy of belonging in spite of the bullshit that my shame is trying to feed me. So the question in this episode is, what do we do about shame? Once we recognize it, how do we deal with it? The first step is we have to become curious about it. And this is pretty hard because as soon as we feel shame, the first thing we want to do is run away from it, hide it, bury it, keep it at arm's length. But it really helps to tell yourself you're very curious about whatever it is you're feeling, that you are allowing whatever is arising to arise without judgment, and that you are curious about it. Because when we're curious about it, then we can begin to become aware of it. We have to look for the tells that alert us to its existence. So for me, I recognized it only by virtue of the thoughts that I heard that told me something like, you're not worthy of connection. You don't deserve to be in a relationship. You'll just fuck it up. She's better off without you. None of which are true and all indicate a measure of shame. And now realize this was not chronic shame. This was transient shame. So this only was around for maybe five minutes, give or take. And those thoughts were only there for seconds. So you got to be in the present. You got to be aware. You got to be curious. So just to give you some of the other possible tells that you might be dealing with shame, here are a few of them. You may be dealing with shame if you are hypersensitive. And if you fly to anger at the constructive comments or criticisms of others, you might be dealing with shame if you are chronically feeling unappreciated. I feel like Jeff Foxworthy. You may be a redneck. Uh, anyway, you may be dealing with shame if you find yourself raging at your kids or your spouse or coworkers, I guess. If you feel like you are being used frequently. If you're a perfectionist. Perfectionism is often a way to keep people's judgments from being harsh against you. You want to please everyone. You don't want to let anyone down. You don't want to show them that you're anything but perfect because it would create too much shame. You might be dealing with shame if you find yourself isolating a lot. If you're withdrawing from social events, from friends. If you feel like you are flawed or something is wrong with you. If you are struggling with addictions. Porn, alcohol, drugs, exercise. If you have low self-esteem and or low self-worth, there might be some shame in there. If you're highly mistrustful of other people. Are you a habitual people pleaser? That might indicate some shame. 
if you often feel excluded socially, if you feel like you can't be your authentic real self, if you're hiding parts of you, and then finally, if you often feel like you're an outsider and Interestingly, almost every man that I have ever spoken to in the past three decades as clients, every one of them felt like a fish out of water growing up. And I I think that really speaks to the shame that is inculcated in each of us as a result of this man box socialization process. So first, you got to identify it, figure out where it is, figure out what's triggering it. And then second, Share what makes you feel ashamed with someone you trust, someone that can validate how you feel, ideally without judgment, ideally with great empathy. Why is this important? It's important because shrink, pardon me, it's important because shame thrives and grows under three conditions one, silence, two, secrecy, and three, harsh judgment. Silence, secrecy, judgment. To quote Brene Brown, the antidote to shame is empathy. If we reach out and share our experience with someone who responds with empathy, shame dissipates. It goes away. Shame needs you to believe that you are alone. Empathy is a hostile environment for shame. So in order to share with others, you need to connect with others. We have to make a concerted effort to improve our relationships, our friendships, our romantic relationships. We have to get into the habit of making positive emotional deposits into the hearts of others so there's something there from which we can make a withdrawal when we are in need. Third, challenge those shame-fueled thoughts. Where's the evidence for these beliefs? Are they true? For instance, is it true that I am unworthy of connection? No. Is it true that my loved ones are better off without me? Hell no. What are the expectations that fuel your shame? Are those expectations realistic? Are they attainable? Are you shooting for perfect? Or are those expectations what you think would please other people? Or are those expectations what would keep others from being disappointed in you? Or are they what would keep others from judging you harshly? And finally, fourth, we have to practice self-compassion. This is a daily practice. And as you practice, I promise you will get better at this skill over time. It is a learnable skill. Because left to its own devices, your mind has internalized criticisms that you got from parents, teachers, and caregivers. Those criticisms over time typically become internalized as your own voice and can be very harsh. At least if my mind is any indication. That inner critic, which is what most of us call it, that inner critic can be mean, judgmental, punitive and downright abusive. My Hall of Fame classic automatic negative thought was, you fucking dumbass. Now, it's fascinating to me because I wouldn't dream of speaking to people in the quote-unquote real world 
the same way that I would speak to myself without a second thought. I was so harsh to myself in my own mind for years. But I never would have spoken to anyone else like that because it would have been mean, cruel, abusive. I wouldn't have even considered it. But I do it to myself. I did it to myself. Why is that fair? So consider what are some of your Hall of Fame classic automatic negative thoughts? Where are you the meanest to yourself in your own head? Now, in contrast, self-compassion is speaking to yourself with kindness, support, caring, and love. I I know, I know you're listening. You're like, what the fuck? Like, who the hell does that? I I understand for many of us, this is quite foreign, quite radically different, particularly for men. In fact, some of the men I've worked with get nervous at this point. And like, ah, it just feels too namby-pamby-ish or that's hippy-dippy shit or that's really Pollyanna-ish or, well, doc, I need that inner critic. That's what keeps me motivated. All right, fair enough. I'm not saying you have to get rid of your inner critic. I'm not even sure that's possible for most of us. But it pays huge fucking dividends to begin to develop an alternate pathway of motivation and responding to challenge and difficulty. And this is the path of self-compassion. And if you want some research to back this up, there's about 15 to 20 years of research now, and the results are really impressive. So studies have shown that an increase in self-compassion is correlated with an increase in life satisfaction, happiness, confidence, gratitude, optimism, and immune system functioning. Well, gee, John, that's not bad. Okay, but wait, there's more. An increase in self-compassion has been associated with a decrease in anxiety, depression, stress, perfectionism, shame, and body dissatisfaction. Wow, John, that's a heck of a list for just learning one skill. Yes, it is. An increase in self-compassion has been shown to lead to an increase in coping and resiliency. It's been shown to result in less fear of failure and a greater likelihood of persistence. It's resulted in more personal responsibility, more motivation, and more willingness to repair past mistakes. And perhaps most importantly, It's been associated with more caring and supportive relationship with your partner, where you become more forgiving, less controlling, and less verbally aggressive. So that's a hell of a list. And that list is probably seven to eight years old. So there's more that's come out since then. So self-compassion has actually been shown to be more powerful than self-esteem. And part of this has to do with the fact that it disconnects our sense of self-worth from how we last achieved. In other words, let's say you're back in school and we're talking self-esteem and you get an A on a test. Your self-esteem goes up. You feel great. You're like, yeah, I'm so smart. Next week, you get an F on the second test and then your self-esteem goes in the toilet. Oh my God, I'm such an idiot. Self-compassion 
disconnects your feeling of self-worth from how you perform on the test. So you realize you have self-worth regardless of how you do on the test. Now, granted, you want to do well on the test, but sometimes it just doesn't work out that way. And so the practice of self-compassion disconnects how you feel about yourself from your latest achievement, which is kind of the opposite of man box, because masculinity is only as good as our last achievement. We're only as we're only manly in so far as we won the last time. And it also irons out the highs and lows of your emotional profile. So it keeps you more even keel. Okay, so let me return to what self-compassion is. Self-compassion has to do with how you talk to yourself when you fail, when you make a mistake, or when you come up short of your goal. It involves taking a compassionate look or a compassionate view toward your own suffering, your own mistakes. It's being kind and understanding towards yourself when you fail or inadequate or suffer misfortune. It involves the recognition that pain and imperfection are an inevitable part of being human. Fucking humanity. Every one of us suffers, yet we're connected by that suffering. And most people say that they're less nurturing towards and more harsh with themselves than they are towards other people. Self-compassionate people are equally kind to themselves and others. Self-compassion can be thought of as a, can be thought of as a type of open-heartedness in which the boundaries between yourself and others are softened. And you have that realization that all human beings are worthy of compassion. All human beings are worthy period yourself included. So according to researcher, Dr. Kristen Neff, there are three aspects to self-compassion. The first one, self-kindness. Second is common humanity or shared suffering. And the third one is mindfulness. So let me briefly go over each of those. Self-kindness is developing the skill where you can be warm and understanding towards yourself when you encounter suffering, inadequacy, or failure instead of ignoring the pain or harshly criticizing yourself. Self-kindness recognizes that you are imperfect, that you fail at times, that when you experience difficulties, that's unavoidable. So it pays to be gentle with yourself when confronted with painful experiences, instead of getting angry when life falls short of your expectations. And the two ways that I try and think of self-kindness is in a similar situation, how would I speak to my best friend? What would I tell him? Which is far different than how I would normally speak to myself in the same painful circumstances. The other way to look at it is, how would I speak to a four or five-year-old who has just made a mistake? And it sounds something like, hey, buddy, not a big deal. I know your ice cream cone just fell on the, on the cement. Don't worry, we all make mistakes. We can learn from this. Next time I want you to hold your cone upright so the cone, the ice cream doesn't fall. And let me go get you another one. It's going to be okay. And the other way to look at it is as I would speak to you. I mean, what I tell my clients is think of my voice when you're undergoing difficulty or suffering. What would I say to you? And interestingly, I just 
had breakfast a couple of days ago and I was in the parking lot in a parking spot. I was completely parked and I opened my door about halfway and it, the spot next to me was empty. And this minivan comes tearing in pretty fast into the empty parking lot spot and crunches into my door. And my first response is, oh man, like, are you kidding me? But within seconds, I pulled myself together. I realized this was a young kid. He was probably 20, wasn't very experienced with driving. He was with his mom. I think he might've been learning to drive. And when we got out and talked, I said, hey, look, accidents happen. Not a big deal. Everyone's safe. That's what's important. This is why we have insurance. So let's just trade insurances and we'll be good. Don't even sweat it. That's a compassionate response. Now, all we have to do is internalize that, and then it becomes self-compassionate. So the second point, common humanity, also known as shared suffering. Now, when things don't go exactly as we want, there's frustration. There's also this deep sense of isolation. As if I am the only person suffering, or as if I, as if my suffering is somehow unique or special or worse than anyone else has ever experienced, or as if you are the only person suffering or making mistakes or feeling these nasty emotions this deeply. So when these emotions I feel try to make us think that our suffering is unique and special. However, if we can get out of the I perspective and interpret our situation from the perspective of others, we can remind ourselves that all humans suffer, that the very definition of being human means that we are mortal, vulnerable, and imperfect. And that those nasty, uncomfortable emotions that arise when we are suffering have actually been shared or experienced by hundreds of millions of people on this planet, likely for the very same reasons that you are suffering from. If not, it's quite close. So these negative emotions that we find quite painful are actually great reminders that we are all together in this thing called life. That suffering and personal failure are part of the shared human experience. That those emotions actually bind us together and point out the fact that we are far from alone. We are one part of a common humanity. And the third piece is mindfulness. And I've talked a little bit about mindfulness on this show. It's basically sit there, focus on your breath allow whatever is arising to arise, know that your mind is going to spit out thoughts that are going to try and distract you and hook you and take your focus away from your breath. That's normal. The practice of mindful mindfulness is the awareness of, oh, my attention is off my breath. I just got hooked by a thought. Okay. And with great self-compassion, simply bring your awareness back to your breath. That is the act of mindfulness. And by doing that over and over and over again, you gain better attentional control, you gain a better ability to stay in the present moment, and you gain a host of other benefits, more frequent positive emotions, less stress, less anxiety, less depression, and so on. 
So the key principles of mindfulness are we only have moments in which we live. So the goal is to focus your awareness on your breath. When you notice your awareness is off your breath, simply, gently return your awareness to your breath. It's not about breathing. It's about awareness. You can't stop the thoughts from coming, but you can change how you relate to the thoughts. And work to try not to judge your thoughts and feelings as good or bad. They simply are. And I love the line of allow whatever's arising to arise without judgment. In other words, huh, I'm feeling really sad right now. Oh, that's interesting. Well, let me give myself some space to be sad right now. I wonder what that sadness is trying to tell me. Now, I have to wrap up because it's Sunday and I want to go watch some football. Oh, and I have to go see some friends over at Jory's too. So I want to end up with this note just to make you aware that you can take Kristen Neff's self-compassion inventory at self-compassion.org. That's self-compassion.org. And you can find out where do you struggle most? Do you struggle most with self-kindness, common humanity, mindfulness? My biggest struggle in the self-compassion realm has been self-kindness. Over time, I've gotten much better at not eviscerating myself and learning to speak to myself as a best friend would. And remember, it's a practice. You improve in little steps over time. This is not a skill you're going to get great at overnight. This is a skill where you will see improvement followed by some regression, followed by improvement, followed by a slight regression. Think of the profile of a jagged mountainside. That's kind of what improvement looks like here. So hopefully this has been an interesting and informative romp through the uplifting topic of shame and men part two. And that is it for this episode of the Evolved Caveman podcast. And my hope for you is may you feel worthy. May you be happy. May you be wildly successful. Until next time, this is Dr. John signing off. Thank you for listening to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com. 